1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 225th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is presented by the prime original series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, from executive producers Amy Sherman-Palladino and Daniel Palladino, and starring Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Borstein, and Tony Shalhoub. Consider it marvelous in all categories, including outstanding comedy series. My guest today is one of her generation's most respected actresses, having shined on screens big and small for the last 25 years. She first burst onto the scene at the age of 14 as high school student Angela Chase on ABC's My So-Called Life, which ran from 1994 through 1995, and for which she was nominated for both an Emmy and a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama Series. Over the ensuing years, she starred in films such as 1994's Little Women, 1996's Romeo and Juliet, 1997's The Rainmaker, 2002's Best Picture Oscar-nominated The Hours, and 2005's Shopgirl. But it was for her portrayal of an autistic livestock industry expert in an HBO TV movie, 2010's Temple Grandin, that she received her greatest acclaim to that point, winning an Emmy, a Golden Globe, and a SAG Award for Best Actress in a Miniseries or TV Movie. But it is with a part that she started playing a year after that, that she is, and may forever be, most closely associated. That of bipolar CIA officer Carrie Matheson on Showtime's Homeland, which recently wrapped its seventh season, and for which she has won two Emmys, two Golden Globes, a SAG Award, and a Critics' Choice TV Award for Best Actress in a Drama Series. I'm talking, of course, about the great Claire Danes. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Matt Bellany, our editorial director, to discuss a wild week on the business side of Hollywood, which could have major ramifications for the worlds of film and TV, and therefore for the Oscars and the Emmys. Matt, thanks for joining us. No problem. It has for some time now looked like all but a done deal. I think that Disney would purchase most of 21st Century Fox's assets for $52.4 billion, but that now seems to be in jeopardy because of Comcast. What is going on here ahead of this, I guess, July 10th meeting where Fox shareholders are going to discuss their future.
2: Well, it's a bidding war, really. I mean, Comcast, which is a media company about the same size as Disney and very similar. They have theme parks, movies, television networks. Comcast has come in with a bid that is about 19, 20 percent bigger than the Disney bid for Fox, and their bid is all cash, whereas the Disney bid is mostly stock. So this is essentially set off a war, and some analysts think that it could get to as high as $80 billion for these Fox assets. In this environment right now where every media company is trying to get bigger to compete with the Facebooks and Netflixes and Googles and Amazons, these digital behemoths that can buy and sell what they want, these Fox assets, which is basically the film studio, the television studio, networks like FX, Nat Geo. It doesn't include Fox News. It doesn't include sports and the Fox broadcast network, but they're pretty significant assets, especially overseas. And that's where Comcast really has been weak. They want to own more overseas and the Fox stuff could give them that. So it's really a battle for the future of these networks and studios. And do you think, though, for Comcast, it's also sort of
1: the the reason they're coming into this so aggressively is from a defensive place that they don't want to lose another major thing to Disney, which already has Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm, and is just looking, you know, harder and harder to compete with.
2: Maybe I mean they're they're about the same size. There is a personal angle here, and that the CEO of Comcast, Brian Roberts, has a big personal rivalry with Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney. They do not like each other, <laughs> but they also see the future, and the future is in scale, and these are assets that don't come along very often. I mean, the Murdochs have for years and years never been interested in selling, and for whatever reason maybe it's succession with his kids maybe it's he sees the writing on the wall he has now decided that this is something he wants to do so they've really it'd be irresponsible of them not to go for it and do you what's your gut tell you does would he would
1: Rupert Murdoch rather be one of Disney's biggest shareholders or get as much as he possibly can for 21st Century Fox
2: Every indication we've seen is that Rupert would like a Disney deal. He sees that as a better home and he sees Disney as a better shepherd for the assets. If you look at some of the synergies that might work well, I mean, Fox has the X Men and Deadpool franchises, and Disney has Marvel. So. That would make sense. Mm -hmm. There could be a Deadpool movie with Spider-Man or with Iron Man or something like that. But Comcast also has theme parks. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the Fox assets could go in those theme parks. You know, it's a really interesting battle. The award space could also be impacted Mm -hmm. here because there's a lot of speculation as to what Disney would do with something like Fox Searchlight, which has really been nurtured under the Murdochs and allowed to take big risks. And it's paid off with a number of of best pictures picture winners most recently with shape of water absolutely and would disney be interested in an r-rated fable that doesn't play by a lot of the same rules that the disney movies play by everything that bob Iger has said is that he wants to preserve that culture and the creativity and i think a lot of the initiatives that Disney has like a streaming service and other things the Fox searchlight movies would fit well within yep. that but for how long right. you know and then you think about the Emmy race right. as well FX has become such a huge player in the Emmy race and has really built their brand on these risk taking and edgy Series, I don't know if Disney would have the appetite for that. I, I gotta think they would. Mm-hmm. I think they wouldn't screw up that kind of brand. Right, right. But you never know. And, you know, Ryan Murphy, FX's biggest creator, and you know, 20th Century Fox's biggest creator, he saw what was going on and he went to Netflix. Right,
1: and we are gonna come to that in a second. But I just, I guess, in the meantime, the, the fact is that until this is resolved with either Disney or Comcast, a lot of people who work for Fox are kind of in limbo, and I'm sure it's not great for morale when you don't know what's going to happen with your future, right?
2: No, everybody we've spoken to, you know, is in this like waiting game, you know, especially the top executives where, you know, if you're running Fox as Stacey Snyder is, the Fox film studio, you're pretty sure your job is not going to exist if either Comcast or Disney buys Fox because they have their own film executive teams and the Fox studio will likely become a glorified label under those executives. And why would Stacey Snyder want to do that? Right. So, you know, that's led to a lot of uncertainty, but she can't really be out there campaigning for another job because she has to run the day-to-day of the studio, although, you know, under the radar, she probably is campaigning for another job. (laughs) But, you know, the the Fox Searchlight people, they're just doing what they do until they're told that they shouldn't anymore. And would they be merged with Focus? under comcast mm-hmm. focus features is the prestige yeah. label under universal mm-hmm. maybe they would maybe it would be a separate label who knows so there are a lot of potential
1: ramifications for the awards fair another big thing that's happened in the last week a judge cleared the way for at&t to buy time warner for 85.4 billion dollars why was this purchase so controversial and who will it affect most
2: This was controversial because the Justice Department decided that the merger of these two companies would harm consumers. And the rationale was that it would give AT&T an unfair position in the marketplace if it could control what HBO does or the output of the Turner networks or CNN or Warner Brothers and, you know, A lot of people think also that Donald Trump just doesn't like CNN and wanted to give them a hard time. That probably was a factor. But, you know, this is a vertical merger where it's different companies within a chain. They're not direct competitors. The Disney and Comcast bids for Fox, that would be a horizontal merger. That would take one competitor out of the market. But that wasn't the case with AT&T. And the judge ruled that it was fine for them to buy Time Warner. Now they have the challenge of merging these two companies. And this was really a total victory for media
1: and media mergers, right? I mean, here, a lot of people thought that the judge might require AT&T to divest itself of DirecTV or require Time Warner to divest itself of CNN. In the end, nobody had to Really do anything?
2: Yeah, it was a huge victory for AT and T and Time Warner, and it is just opening the floodgates now to this what we expect will be a wave of mergers and consolidations within the industry over the next couple of years. Like Sony,
1: MGM, Lionsgate, AMC, Networks, Discovery Communications—they've all been rumored, right, to be in the mix here for this. Absolutely,
2: kind of- various scenarios where different companies might merge. There may be a buyer. Who knows? You know, Apple could buy a studio, YouTube or Google could buy a studio. Some. These smaller entities could merge. Everybody's trying to get bigger and to bulk up for this digital future where everybody's a content player. And I guess for consumers, the the fear
1: is that there will be higher prices, fewer choices, but we'll have to wait and see.
2: Well, and the creative community fears that there may be. There's been this boom by Netflix pumping billions of dollars into the content industry, and the fear is that that gravy train is going to end and there will be fewer buyers for shows and movies. Right. One last thing that we've just learned about today is
1: that Apple and Oprah are going into business together. The terms are not yet public, but Oprah will continue to serve as the chairman and CEO of her Discovery-backed cable network OWN, with which she expanded her deal in December all the way through 2025. And Oprah's Harpo Films will own any and all content produced under the Apple partnership. So what exactly
2: is Apple getting here? Well, they're getting Oprah. They're getting a gigantic press release. This is exactly what we've been talking about. There's this gold rush for talent right now, and all these companies are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at different talent, and this is a crown jewel. To say you're in business with Oprah Winfrey is you know, something that Netflix and Amazon and all the traditional companies can't say, and now Apple can say it. It is unclear what exactly she's going to be doing at Apple as opposed to what she has done. On own, and I think Discovery, as her investor in own, is going to benefit because if Harpo is producing these shows, then they will benefit. But you know, it's a big coup, and it's it's another example of just the the war for talent that's going on right now.
1: Which, again, as you started to reference, Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes to Netflix, Greg Berlanti to Warner Brothers TV these are deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Hard to imagine Oprah isn't getting that kind of money as well, probably more and maybe others to follow. So we'll keep an eye on that. And Matt Bellany, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. And now for my interview with Claire Danes. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 39-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how she found her way into the business at such a young age, how she landed My So-Called Life, and how her life and career changed as a result of that short-lived show, what she learned from her subsequent experiences on film sets with the likes of Winona Ryder and Jodie Foster, and why, a year after Romeo and Juliet, she passed on a chance to star opposite Leonardo DiCaprio again in another little film called Titanic, why she decided to leave the business, just as her career was really taking off, to study at Yale University, why she returned to the business before graduating, and what it was like for her trying to figure out her place in the business as an adult... Why, for nearly a year after the triumph of Temple Grandin, she felt deeply hurt about the lack of quality opportunities coming her way, and why, at that low point, she decided to become a regular on a TV series again for the first time in more than 16 years, what she has found most fascinating and challenging about playing Carrie Matheson over the last seven years on a show that has been eerily prescient about a lot of real-world problems and solutions, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Claire, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. We always begin on this podcast with some basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: I was born in Roosevelt Hospital on the island of Manhattan in New York City in 1979. I grew up on Crosby Street Mm -hmm. in Soho. Mm -hmm. My parents were artists. They met at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. But when I came around, my dad became, was a contractor for 20 years and my mom ran a toddler school in our, she was a textile designer. Mm -hmm. And then she ran a toddler school in our loft called Crosby Kids. Mm -hmm. So I cohabitated basically with a lot of of one, two year olds. (laughs) There were cubbies in the the entryway and things, just raisins. Everywhere and diluted apple juice in the refrigerator. So, yeah, and that's what they did. And then I dragged them out to LA when I became this odd kid actor. Right. And they've stayed. So now they're in Santa Monica. And And you went back. (laughs) And I moved back as soon as I could, but I stay with them when I'm here. Nice. Yeah.
1: Well, the way I read it, trying to go back and find things, even from when you were just starting out, which was interesting because there's some interview magazine and different things that right. were on you very early on. Yeah. It sounds like it It really, we owe it to Madonna for you being here. Is that right?
0: <laughs> it's true. I guess she was my initial inspiration. I think she probably was for a lot mm-hmm. of people in my generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw her on television when I was about five and I it just registered that performing could be one's job mm-hmm. and that seemed very appealing <laughs> but i i do remember like the television was in my parents room mm-hmm. and i was i shot up on the bed and i started bouncing on it because i had this you know this epiphany <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a little while to kind of differentiate acting specifically from just being on stage right, right, um, right. in a general sense and kind of dancing
1: around well i see you also Sounds like you had a very vivid imagination. Did this cause some, you know, as early as six, you had to deal with this a little bit, right?
0: Yeah, no, I knew I wanted to be an actor from from that point on. I had danced from the age of four mm-hmm. on. So, but um, what
1: I mean, I guess not to, if it, you know, what I had seen, maybe right. again, there's some bullshit out there. Yeah. But this, did you have like imaginary? friends or, or things like oh
0: that. yeah I had to go to therapy when I was six because I saw creatures <laughs> there was a gargoyle that lived in on the pipes the ceiling of my loft and like <laughs> would make me do things and I couldn't take a shower alone because I was convinced that like demons were coming out of the shower I mean it got it got kind of intense <laughs> but i I think that was just it. a kind of perverse expression of having imaginary yeah. friends. And when I finally saw this therapist, he asked me if could I anticipate seeing them? You know, was it was was it something that I had some control over mm-hmm. that I would make manifest in my imagination? And I had to admit that that was probably true. So <laughs> if I could make them appear, I could also make them go away. Right. And I also realized if I was in therapy that may I might have a problem and that kind of. Yeah, that it, that was enough
1: it to resolve it, ultimately. So how did dance, which, as you say, you started at such a young age, how did that give way to acting at also a very young age?
0: Well, I had a really wonderful teacher, Ellen Robbins, who I still see in the neighborhood on occasion, and she's still teaching. I just saw Maggie Gyllenhaal at some photo shoot, mm-hmm. and her daughter goes to her class, oh, and really? Julianne Moore sends her daughter to her class. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. She she was great in that. Even at the age of four, she took me and every other one of her students, you know, very seriously. And we are we were asked to choreograph our own piece and choose our own music and our own theme and our costume. And so I think that was very encouraging mm-hmm. and edifying. And, and then people would come looking for talent at her, you know, in the class. Mm-hmm. And I tend to be kind of hammy and conspicuous (laughs) and would often get chosen. So had some experience performing something like professionally, Mm -hmm. La Mama or PS122, you know, these theaters, mostly in the Lower East Side Mm -hmm. in New York. And, you know, so had a taste of what that was like and responded very positively to it.
1: Yeah. Well, how does somebody at 12 get an agent?
0: Well, I started taking acting classes at Lee Strasberg when I was 10 Mm -hmm. and loved that and took it very seriously. (laughs) You Um, were
1: method early. (laughs) I was
0: desperately trying to feel that wind. And then I found a junior high school, a new junior high school called PPAS, Professional Performing Arts School. Mm -hmm. And I went in its first year of existence and met some other kids who were working professionally and Kind of figured out what an agent was and how to get one and Uh my dad had been a photographer and so we still had a dark room in our loft and so a woman who was renting it at the time took my headshots and we sent them out Uh and i got responses and had meetings and i'd actually done a couple of student films Uh so my best friend at the time Uh and my still my best friend to Uh this day Arielle. Her mom is a choreographer, and Arielle had been a dancer, had danced with her mother, and I guess that's how she was chosen to be in a student film, and uh-huh. that same director was going to make another movie and was looking for another kid, so... Tamar Ariel's mm-hmm. mom, who ended up kind of choreographing a piece that I did in my twenties, mm-hmm. suggested me. So she served as my first agent, really. But so I had
1: was some... that a thing where you, you Milos Forman was there? Yes, or something?
0: yes. Milos Forman was the teacher of the director who was making the student mm-hmm. film, this graduate film for Columbia. So he was at my first audition
1: when you were wild so you were i was 11 11 11, and it was yeah
0: (laughs) i know and that was very outrageously fortunate but yeah i did that and and just totally fell in love with Mm -hmm. the process and also had something to show to Mm -hmm. these agents so a woman called karen friedman at writers and artists took me on at Mm -hmm. 12 And that was it. And I would rollerblade from audition to audition (laughs) and started kind of booking gigs. Well,
1: you must have been an interesting client because I heard the first offer you got was a no from you.
0: Yeah, I guess the first offer I got was for Days of Our Lives, and I turned it down because I was concerned that I was still unformed and malleable as an actor, and I didn't want to develop bad, soapy habits. Well, that's
1: amazing for a 12-year-old to even think in those terms. Most people would be thrilled they just got a job. Yeah,
0: I guess so. I don't know where I got that chutzpah, but <laughs> yeah, and I kind of lost it along the way, that discernment. Right. But Came back.
1: (laughs) Well, so after initially, I guess these first jobs were all in New York. I know there was like a Law & Order episode and there were, of course, you got it. I mean, who who doesn't? A pilot for a Dudley Moore sitcom, all Uh this stuff. What is it that led to this really kind of fateful trip in December of 92 out to LA for the first time? Because what came of it is actually not what brought you out there, right? I guess
0: I had some experience of coming out to L.A., coming close to getting jobs and going on screen tests, which was a very glamorous thing. And, you know, stretch limousines would arrive (laughs) on our cobblestone Crosby Street and my dad would take me out. I remember we kind of landed in some hotel in West Hollywood and kind of walked to some restaurant and realized that we were not. I don't know, that we, like, walked into a, you know, the a very gay strip or something. <laughs> it was a middle-aged man and his tiny daughter. Right. We felt very confused. But, yeah, I guess I don't really remember. Actually, my dad, I am 39 years old, and my dad, I was staying with my folks out here in L.A., mm-hmm. uh, drove me to and from my soul cycle class and
1: as he he was
0: driving me home he said oh yeah that's where you auditioned for my so-called
1: life wow and i
0: was like oh right oh right
1: well the reason what i'm what i'm driving at is that and maybe this is incorrect but what i read was that the audition for my so-called life was actually just sort of an add-on when in fact you had come out here because spielberg wanted to screen test you for schindler's list
0: I don't think that's right. I don't remember the circumstances of my auditioning for my so-called life. I think it was probably like those screen tests. It probably was called out because I had auditioned in New York in a way that was convincing. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I could be getting this wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see Winnie Holtzman for lunch yeah. tomorrow. Um, <laughs> she might have a clear memory of the, it. We the, She's the, writer, writer, the who, of, who, of, Sort of the of alter ego, own. right? Of your yeah, character. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're still very close. But she might recall it in greater detail.
1: But Spielberg did watch you He for the...
0: did, he did. But I auditioned for that on tape, I okay. think, in New York remember working on my Polish accent for that. But I kept being told I was the spirit of the movie, the spirit of the movie, and basically I was like kind of a glorified extra. And they weren't going to pay for a tutor, and I didn't want to be... That was the issue.
1: That was the issue. And just if I correct here, it was to play the maid of the Ray Fiennes character. No. No?
0: I think it was like the girl in the red coat or something. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it was like not a real role or something like that. Right, right, right.
1: Well, okay, so anyway you end up at the audition for My So-Called Life, which I guess we should also note was the team that was coming off of 30-something, right?
0: Right. Ed Zwick and Marshall Gravitz. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they'd been impressed from what I saw with your Law & Order episode, because what what else did they have to go on at that point? (laughs) So... It basically came down to Alicia Silverstone, who yeah. was three years older than you, and yeah. you. Yeah. And it would have been easier to go with Alicia Silverstone, right? Because, I guess, hours that you can work with an actress. Yeah, I that.
0: think I was probably a real hindrance in that respect. Yeah, I was 13, 13. when I did the pilot. And child labor laws are, are, are pretty strict <laughs> right, yeah. for a good reason. But, yeah, no, so what do you remember they took about that the audition? liability on. About that audition? Yeah. I don't remember much. I remember just loving the script so much. It was like... diary entry of my dreams you know (laughs) and it was obviously a good fit you know and I really I remember meeting Ed and Marshall and Winnie and they were all really kind kind of like my parents friends Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know they seemed familiar and yeah I'm just so glad that they took that risk Mm -hmm. on me yeah
1: well we should state for anyone who did not have the privilege of living through those days. This was 94 to 95. The show was on. You were playing Angela Chase, this girl who's dealing with all kinds of crap in high school. Uh You had not yet even been to high school yourself. No, not when I shot the pilot, but you'd had, it sounds like your own share of drama. Right, right. Yeah. Right. I'd been to three junior highs. Yeah. Why was that?
0: I went to PPAS and so PPAS went from, it added, a high school onto its junior high school program really quickly. And it just kind of needed to meet a certain quota. And it was not so discriminating when it came to, you know, choosing the kids. So it was like LaGuardia rejects. Right. And uh, it just was in a kind of going through some growing pains. Right. And so suddenly it wasn't the best school for me. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to the lab school. and I, I guess was there was there three junior highs? Maybe it was just those two. Mm-hmm. The lab school where I was in the same class with Marina Baccarin, who I would find That's again. crazy. In Homeland and is
1: one of my closest friends now. So you guys knew each other at that time? Yeah. Oh, my We went gosh. to junior
0: high school together.
1: Wow. We were tortured by the same girl. I read about it. So it was really like a bad bully of a girl?
0: There were three bullies, yes, mm-hmm. that I kept re-encountering. One in sixth grade, which I guess that was maybe the th- that was the. Th- that was the other junior high the, you know, mm-hmm. it's cuspy. So and then one again who had PPS and then another one at the lab school. But there was this kind of archetypical person who just seemed to devote their life to making me really
1: unhappy. It was you specifically or just generally being uh, generally picky? being awful. Yeah. I
0: mean, Moraine and I still talk about this one person. My friend Arielle and I still talk about uh-huh. this other person. Uh-huh. But but I, I think because I kept my mom's response to that challenge was to just put me in another school, but uh-huh. that I kept being the new girl and kept being vulnerable for that reason. And I think I just wasn't really good at junior high in that I was like a bull in a china shop with uh-huh. all of those really rigid rules uh-huh. that especially girls are supposed to observe uh-huh. and conform to. And I, I and I didn't get the memo that you were supposed to dumb down. And <laughs> I was just, you know, aggressively nerdy and, and an engaged oh, student, geez. to use a euphemism. Right. right? But right. I was just like that girl with her hand eternally up. And I think I was probably pretty obnoxious. I got slapped around for it, I think. But my, again, Arielle, who I always cite, she only allowed herself to answer 3 questions per class and she was very disciplined about remaining just invisible enough and you know, ended up being valedictorian, but nobody would ever know. There was not a trace, and I was not so discreet, I guess.
1: I guess it gave you rich material for when you had to now play yeah, this. Yeah, you know.
0: yeah. And I just thought it was horrible. I, I thought it was horrible. And, you know, and then Winnie just handed me this mic, mm. you know, she was like my Saranon de Bergeac kind of thing. <laughs> and I, I got to vent all right. of my frustrations in the most perfectly articulated way. So that was a massive gift and I had a lot of a lot of rage (laughs) to release then I was sort of ironically pulled from school I was really good for me to go back to college and Mm -hmm. learn that the girls especially do evolve into you know
1: infinitely better versions of their junior high school selves well a few years before that though so when you first now land this part it was obvious it must have been it felt like the biggest deal by far yet how did your life practically changed.
0: Well, I did the pilot and then it did not get picked up. Oh, really? So I went back to high school. I, and But I had been working a little bit at this time so I made my own money and I kind of mm-hmm. sent myself to a big fancy private <laughs> school. So I went to Dalton for, okay. for a semester. And then my so-called life did get picked up. What changed? I don't know, actually. Mm-hmm. I guess they revisited it and I don't remember. But that was confusing, mm-hmm. I, I guess in a great way. But so mid you know, in the middle of my freshman year, I then went out to LA. Is
1: that tough to be? Separated picked up where from we your, left off. Your friends and all that, or you remember it being exciting? Or you know. we were so confused. <laughs> I
0: mean, it kind of worked well for our family in that we were at coincidentally sort of at a natural fissure, and my dad's business was ending. My mom was kind of ready to move on mm-hmm. from her toddler school. My brother is seven years older. when was at college at this point. So we were kind of liberated in a way and, and available to this experience. But, you know, so we landed in LA very disoriented and confused. And it was literally the day after that massive earthquake. Oh, Northridge. of yeah, oh, Northridge. Yeah, Northridge earthquake. So we missed... The massive rumble, but we were there for all of the aftershocks, and everybody was ashen. You know, everybody was just in this, you know, had been traumatized, and we showed up, (laughs) and it was just, it was too apt of a metaphor really. for, a, you know, we were already felt that way really. and then the earth was literally shaking. So <laughs> I remember we were so naive It was, was and we just kind of let it wash over us. And I think we were so lucky to have stepped into such a wonderful culture, mm-hmm. you know, like a version of mm-hmm. Hollywood with Ed and Marshall and Winnie, you know, who were
1: so kind of responsible and upstanding. And but when you, you know, stepped out of that bubble, once the show got order to series and it was going and finding, you know, maybe not a massive audience, but the people who watched it loved it. How did your actual day-to-day life outside of the bubble of making it change? Because I mean, yeah, today with smartphones and stuff, it gets crazy, but I'm sure it was not easy at the time.
0: I guess. I mean, I was still going to high school. I'm barely, I was mostly tutored. Okay. You know, so I I started working a lot after that, Mm -hmm. you know, it got canceled and then I did quite a few movies, yeah. so kind of hopped from set to set and would occasionally drop into the one school that would accept me here in mm-hmm. Los Angeles was Lisee Francais. You know, in New York, a kid actor seemed kind of exotic and impressive, but here in L.A., we're a dime a dozen, and every <laughs> right. school knows how much of a pain in the right, ass we are right. and how disruptive we are, <laughs> so the really good school, I don't know, whatever, so, but it was just so weird. I felt a little freakish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
1: were enjoying the the job aspect of it enough. I was just it... working
0: all the time. Yeah. I didn't have much of a life, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I don't think I really felt the impact of suddenly being famous. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was mostly on set mm-hmm. where that's not so meaningful or relevant, you
1: know? Well, with my so-called life, I mean, I, I want to try to see if you've figured out why it only was there for 19 episodes over nine months or whatever it was, I think, about that. I know ABC, I think, was putting it on at 8 o'clock and up against, at one point I saw, I think it was Mad About You, at one point it was the first season of Friends. That can't have, you know... I
0: have no idea. idea. I think. Were
1: you shielded from all the... Did you know that the show was in trouble?
0: Yeah, I knew that the show was in trouble. But, yeah, I think it was... One of my favorite quotes is that David Bowie quote, it doesn't matter who does it first, it matters who does it second. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was probably just a little too ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of shows that followed it that really did kind Mm -hmm. of land that were very, I think we're heavily influenced Mm -hmm, by it. So, uh, you know, it was a provocative show. It was—I mean, it was kind of amazing that it was that it ever aired on the Mm -hmm. in the first place.
1: A young female perspective. Yeah, Yeah. and well, it definitely—I mean, I'm sure you hear it every day that it really touched people who did watch it, and I don't know if it was maybe the. The, the voiceover aspect where people actually felt you were almost confiding in them or whatever it was. but yeah I'm
0: amazed by its endurance and and the extent of its afterlife. I'm amazed and moved by it mm-hmm. really. I people who grew up with the show are now sharing it with their teenagers mm-hmm. and it has proven to you know continue to speak to current generations and yeah. it's it's kind of timeless which is you know what uh, how how lucky are we to have yeah. made something like that that's always the the hope
1: Well I wonder if we can tick off some of the projects you did between the cancellation and then going off to college just a couple of notes about each of them just to see if you have anything you want to add Little Women I think was maybe the first one after. That
0: was the first, yeah.
1: And it's you and Winona, right? Uh You're the dying, the slowly dying sister. Beth. But people... Saintly Beth. Yeah, saintly Beth. And I mean, the the scene though that I saw, if you go back and look at reviews and things that were written at the time people the the scene where you realize you've been given this piano for mm. Christmas people were very impressed with how you handled that
0: yeah I remember talking to my dad about that scene at the time kind of wrestling with it and trying to think about how I would play it and I guess I my dad was around mm-hmm. and well I was doing my homework mm-hmm. with the scene yeah and I guess maybe I don't I I remember what I asked exactly something I guess why does she have this response uh-huh. to this gift and my dad said she realizes that she's loved uh-huh. And it makes me cry, I think it mm-hmm. was just so right, and that really helped
1: yeah, <laughs> so yeah
0: my dad directed me in that moment, yeah, so I remember that 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 that's my dad's fault that's
1: great well the, <laughs> a year later ninety five home for the holidays you are Holly Hunter's teenage daughter mm-hmm. and I guess the big thing here was the director was Jodie Foster right?
0: yeah I remember going to meet her for the first time to audition, and I just come from set for my so-called life and i was apologizing because i had my face full of a face full of makeup and was sort of embarrassed by that and she said that's so funny i used to be so embarrassed by that too (laughs) and she also went to louise francais and i think that she just there was a clear parallel Mm -hmm. there and she was such a cool impressive person Mm -hmm. and a a kind of wonderful
1: mentor to Mm -hmm. have had in that moment The year after that, 96, a little small part Juliet in Romeo and Juliet for Baz Luhrmann. Leonardo DiCaprio, who I believe was cast before you, Uh has said in one of these interviews back then that you were the only actress who looked at him in the eyes during the audition. Do you do you remember him saying that? I guess he was intimidating even (laughs) pre-Titanic.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that was such an such an amazing experience. I mean, just Baz is a really Unusual filmmaker, mm-hmm. unusually gifted—you mm-hmm. know—a a real visionary, mm-hmm. uh, an auteur. There aren't many of those on yeah. the planet. And his interpretation of that story was so radical and so beautiful, and was really all about making it grounded and accessible and clear. And I happened to be an actor, I guess, who could help serve that.
1: Yeah. So, but doing yeah. like, the balcony scene at 16 or something, that must have been intimidating.
0: Yeah, I guess so. It was. It was. Um, but I, I, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the writing was pretty good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but as a result of that movie, you now I guess you were seen for the first time as a movie star too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. this put, put you on the map internationally. I read that maybe as a result of that, you were the first choice for the part of Rose in Titanic a year later. Is that true?
0: I don't know if that's true. I mean, yes, I was definitely in contention for that. But I just filmed Romeo and Juliet in Mexico City. We were going to, Titanic was going to be filmed in Mexico again for Mm -hmm. another five months or something with Leo, Mm -hmm. another romantic epic. I think I just couldn't repeat that experience so immediately Mm -hmm. and i think i wanted i wanted to uh, you know experiment with maybe different styles (laughs) of storytelling or different locations i don't know do i regret that no i I don't no Uh, it would
1: have been a totally different career
0: yeah i remember when because leo and i had the same manager at the time Mm -hmm. and i was on a balcony i remember and he was kind of riding in a red convertible. Leo. Yeah. At least yeah. he rented some car. His was mm-hmm. Zippy Car. <laughs> and he threw his hands up and he said, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You know, he just agreed to do the Titanic. <laughs> and I was like, you know, good for you. But I think it was one of those choices, mm-hmm. you know, that I think he knew what it would mean for him. Mm-hmm. And maybe there was part of me that knew what it might mean for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was ready.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even, Kay Winslet, who ended up playing the part, has said that I think for a number of years, it, it made it impossible to do certain things that she wanted to do. Right. It's so.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I mean, not to be trite, but mm-hmm. I think I don't really think everything happens for a reason. But that was not my course. Yeah. I think I just kind of had more growing up to
1: do. Yeah. And if you had done that, you would not have been able to do a year after Romeo and Juliet. The Rainmaker for Coppola.
0: Right, right. I Yeah, I did The Rainmaker. I did a little turn on U-Turn and with yeah. Oliver Stone and, I don't know, zipped around.
1: Was there ever, this one I, I wanted to check also because I don't know if it's correct, but there were some things that were saying you were in the mix for the part that ended up being the Oscar winner for Angelina in Girl Interrupted. Did you go out for that one?
0: No, Winona, I knew Winona from our time on Little Women Together, yeah. and she was working on Girl Interrupted and gave me the book. Mm-hmm. I think she was
1: interested in me being a part of it, mm-hmm. but no, it wasn't for Angelina's role. All right. So was it a tough call? Like, what went into the decision not long after that, I think, to to go off to college? And I mean, the, the thing, I, we've talked to a number of people who had started young like you, and the thing that seems to keep coming up is like, on the one hand, people are a little apprehensive because they don't know if they'll be able to return like there's some fear that
0: yeah I I think I had some of that Mm -hmm. but I had always wanted to go to college Mm -hmm. and I think I was a little a little confused Mm -hmm. about how to be a movie star Mm -hmm. and an actor Mm -hmm. and I as I said before I need I had a lot of growing up to do and I needed to kind of Hang out with kids my own age mm-hmm. and explore my identity in a protected environment.
2: Was
1: Jody Foster a factor here because she had gone? To I think Yale. Jody
0: definitely encouraged me mm-hmm. to do to go to school, but so she was an influencer, mm-hmm. but she wasn't the the sole yeah. reason why yeah, I yeah. went by any means. My grandfather had been the dean of art and architecture at Yale, mm-hmm. so that kind of hovered in my imagination, mm-hmm. and I was just really keen I was really desperate to give that to myself mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm really glad I did I yeah. mean I and I I didn't finish <laughs> two years yeah. seemed sufficient yeah. like I kind of um,
1: you got what you needed uh, out I got, of it.
0: got what I needed out yeah. of it yeah
1: were you able to have a kind of normal college experience while totally. you were there yeah,
0: yeah. I mean I'm from New
1: Haven people are yeah, are you? yeah oh, I, I feel like uh, oh yeah I
0: noticed your cell phone yeah is, yeah, uh, right. is in New Haven. yeah no I mean I also had just bought a loft Mm -hmm. that I was renovating. And so I would go home on the weekends to oversee the renovation of my loft. And, you know, there was that weirdness, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I felt like a normal student, but I probably wasn't and was very involved with my boyfriend at the time Mm -hmm. and kind of felt married. Mm -hmm. And I I really felt like a mature student in some ways, like I was going back to school and I had taken a year off. Actually, I took a gave myself a gap year. Mm -hmm. I made Broke Down Palace during that Mm year. So I was even literally a year older, but I'd had, I'd done a lot already. Mm -hmm. So I was really there to learn. I was very nerdy, even (laughs) at Yale.
1: And you were totally focused on, there was no acting in between when you were there, you were there. I was
0: there when I was there, I was there. I thought that I would be, I would make a movie during my summers. Mm -hmm. That was unrealistic. I kind of forgot failed to realize how much work goes into getting work and Mm -hmm. being at Yale was entirely consuming. And I wasn't, I wasn't available to take meetings or read scripts or anything. And movies are not, you know, they're fluid and messy and the start date would be July 4th and then it would drift into September. And, you know, so it it just, that that wasn't so tenable. I mean, But it was three, it was a good three years Mm -hmm. when I, I I really didn't do anything, not even totally intentionally. Mm -hmm. I'd hoped to pepper that time with some, Mm -hmm. some involvement, but it just didn't work out. And for whatever reason, and actually I think that was probably fine and more than fine. I think it was valuable.
1: Does any part of you ever think maybe I'll finish this someday, go back and finish the Degree? Nah. No.
0: no but, <laughs> uh, but I think you're getting I, worse. I, I know what college is, right. and I'm really glad for that. Right. And I kind of got the fundamentals yeah. from it, and I didn't really need more for myself. But it was funny going back to work as an actor, mm-hmm. because I was approaching it like a Yale student or something, and I kind of forgot mm-hmm. how kind of intuitive and visceral an exercise it is. So I was overthinking it for a while there.
1: Well, let's talk about the, I guess, the few years after you came back to acting, the projects preceding, I think, like what has to be a big turning point in your mind I, I maybe not didn't have the immediate effect of being a turning point but Temple Grandin uh-huh. so before that yeah, The Hours you're working with Meryl I know she'd been like your hero forever totally. right? Totally
0: I mean yeah it was a very modest role but it was so much fun to get to play with her even.
1: and a movie that everybody saw because it was a Best Picture nominee yeah, and all that yeah. The Hours was 2002 Stage Beauty 2004 uh-huh. about basically the rise of female actors mm-hmm. in England 17th century uh-huh. I have read two conflicting statements that I wonder if you can sort out. you've said on the one hand, it was one of your favorite parts, but on the other hand, it was very frustrating because you got to basically play a bad actor.
0: Oh yeah. It wasn't frustrating, but it was, a little, it was surprisingly scary. Yeah. When I was doing those scenes where I had to act badly, <laughs> I think there was part of me that was nervous about
1: <laughs> doing that too well. <laughs> they think you're, um, you're just bad. Right? Yeah. Okay, two thousand five. I love this movie, Shop Girl with Steve Martin. It just felt different than anything else before that, right?
0: That was a real joy. I'd read the book just because I, you know, was curious about it. Mm-hmm. That kind of felt like a diamond kind of falling from the sky. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin has been an idol of mine. You know, I'm not alone in this, mm-hmm. but you know, for for so long. And I, I thought it was a very brave of him mm-hmm. to tell that story and represent himself in that light mm-hmm. and in that way. And I think it was such a shift in tone for yeah. him. And he was surprisingly vulnerable mm-hmm. within that context. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I felt very privileged to be asked to tell that story with him.
1: Two years after that, 2007 evening, which is significant because you're not only reunited with Merrill, but... From a personal yeah. standpoint, I think it was pretty important.
0: Yeah. It, that movie gave me the rest of my life.
1: huge dancing. Um, yeah.
0: I worked with my husband, who mm-hmm. was not my husband at the time. Right. <laughs> but yeah, Michael Cunningham, who wrote the uh-huh. screenplay, was our... Efficient at our wedding and he became a best friend and mm-hmm. Meryl Streep's daughter Mamie Gummer yep. was in the movie and she became a best mm-hmm. friend I mean I really I didn't just get a husband I got <laughs> I got a lot of mm-hmm. very important people yeah. out of that one and it felt quite magical my parents met you know and we shot in Rhode Island <laughs> in Newport my parents met in Rhode mm-hmm. Island i he was joking the other day. We, we have to be very careful about
1: Cyrus ever <laughs> stepping foot on that state. <laughs> <laughs> so things were going along nicely enough with all these, you know, every year or two, a, a, a nice, generally indie movie. But would you have been content if things just kind of continued as they were going? Or were you kind of always craving something like a, a Temple Grandin, which ended up this is a 2010 HBO movie that I think people looked at you. With newfound appreciation after that,
0: yeah. I gosh, I remember I was offered that role, which mm-hmm. is well, it's always surprising when somebody offers me anything. <laughs> but Hugh and I were at the end of a really lavish, indulgent Mediterranean adventure. We had a summer kind of hopping from one outrageously beautiful place Ischia, to another. Right? We were, yeah. But I so we I happened to be in Ischia at the time. There's
1: this film festival
0: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and it was just so I I don't know neither of us were working that summer and we were like you know what screw it let's just like have the best time ever Mm -hmm. and we did Mm -hmm. it was great so I get this call to consider this story and this character in you know some five-star hotel and Italy, <laughs> you know, it was just so discordant mm-hmm. with Temple, a and
1: livestock industry, yeah, the exactly, expert exact, with awesome yeah, expert. exactly, yeah, exactly.
0: So it was really hard for me to digest in that particular moment. I had only the faintest sense of her. And then you know, I had to kind of do some investigating and mm-hmm. kind of figure out who she was before I could. Couldn't think about it more deeply, and it was terrifying. You know, it was absolutely terrifying.
1: (laughs) First time playing a living person, real living person. Yeah, obviously somebody who's got a affliction. I guess you could say in a way that it could go wrong if you have to play it. Oh gosh!
0: I remember we had filmed the movie, and I watched. What was that movie? Oh, gosh, it's so good with Ben Stiller and Robert Downey Jr. And it's like, what's that movie? You know it. You know it. Robert Downey Jr. does that amazing impression. They do that war movie. Tropic oh, Thunder. Oh, 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 yeah. Tropic Thunder. But, and Ben Stiller plays some oh. like autistic person yes. or something. Yes. Simple Jack, I yes. think it yes. was, and I was like, oh my god, yeah. I th- did I just do simple freaking Jack? You know, like, are people gonna see it that way? Because right. is it gonna be reduced to that in the public imagination? You know, I just suddenly had this real panic. Well, do you
1: remember what what Downey's line is in there? I think or what what is it? it? It's not <laughs> it's not very PC, but oh. like you you never go full. Retard. Retard. Well,
0: a Temple, I remember when I I met with Temple, I spent a day with her and assailed her with questions. Mm -hmm. She was so lovely and gracious and totally open to all of them. But she, you know, she admitted that when she heard that I was doing the role, Mm -hmm. she didn't have any sense of me. And so she looked me up online and found all of this Vitriol, as one does when they go searching for anything online, and she said, people were pretty suspicious. And she was, she said that somebody had said, "I don't think Claire Danes can play a retard," oh my God. and she laughed. She thought that was so <laughs> funny. But yeah, so oh
1: so yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, if you had her confidence, what else really like did you need? I guess that's true. I mean, I I don't know if she.
0: Did she I think her confidence grew over time, <laughs> but it was uncharted and it was, and it was risky because again, our intentions could have been
1: very garbled or misconstrued or miscommunicated. Well, you had an interesting, and this is, this is crazy. I don't know if it's, it's got a, I assume it's a coincidence, but like just shortly before you did this, your husband had done Adam yes, about Asperger's. Funny? Yeah.
0: Yes. No, he, a year Prior to my doing Temple, he had also played a person on the Spectrum. Mm-hmm. We were both on the cover of Spectrum Magazine <laughs> in the same in the year. Same what year. other couple can say that? Yeah. <laughs> but no, that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And all the required reading was already in on our bookshelves. <laughs> and I would call him when I, you know, how did you do your stims, you know, self-stimulation? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what did you do for your panic attack? And it was very handy.
1: Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, so... For Temple Grandin, you got just, I think, at that up to that point, as great notices and responses, anything you'd done, Golden Globe, Emmy, all of this. But I understand that the next couple of years, when you would think you're going to get a huge bounce out of something like that, were actually not satisfying for you. What happened?
0: well it's not something that you can be typecast as very easily right right? Right. like let's get her for the next (laughs) temple so i don't know i but it's true it was an awkward period because i felt so stretched and so revived and robust as a performer Uh you know i felt very alive Uh and ready and there just wasn't anything worthy of attaching myself Uh to. And also after having met that challenge Uh creatively, I just had less patience for the girlfriend role, you know, and I just couldn't bring myself to do something two dimensional. Uh So I chose not to do anything at all, which was tough. It was kind of
1: crushing after a certain point. I had read at one point, did you actually like, with any degree of seriousness consider stopping acting altogether No
0: I never considered stopping acting but I was just deeply frustrated mm-hmm. I mean it's 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 hard being an actor because we're dependent on so many other forces and factors and players you know we need we need original material to mm-hmm. exist and we need a producer to put those pieces together and we need a director to hire you know it's like <laughs> we don't have a so, you know, my, I think in these terms because my parents are artists, but you know, we don't have a studio that we can go into every day. That's one reason why I love television, is mm-hmm. because I kind of do have the equivalent of a studio. Yeah. You know, I have a day job. Yeah. I, I love the regularity of it, the routine of it, the volume of it. I love just getting to do it over and over again. It's kind of the nice thing about being a lead on a project mm-hmm. is that it, you kind of are afforded the time and opportunity to really relax into every moment. If you have a smaller role, each line becomes impossibly precious mm-hmm. and then self-consciousness mm-hmm. kicks in. And, you know, so I just, I like being in a flow.
1: Yeah. Well, it's ironic that right when you were going through this period, when you were saying, you know, post Temple Grandin, not feeling great about things, Apparently it was the day after Temple Grandin aired, obviously unbeknownst to you, that Alex Gonza and Howard Gordon, who had done who were coming off of 24, started writing Homeland the day after Temple Grandin, literally. Oh, oh, is that true? They've said mm-hmm. and were writing it with you in mind. They were gonna originally call the character Claire. Claire. Yes,
0: I knew that. But also That, I mean, that is a credit to their imaginations and their vision, man, (laughs) that they could go from Temple to Carrie Matheson, you know, that they could see some kind of thread there or because I couldn't. You know, when they say that they wrote this character with me in mind, I I still don't know how to take that to this day. (laughs) (laughs) "Mm, I don't know if that's, yeah, it's exactly flattering.
1: But, (laughs) Well, so how did they initially reach out to you about obviously it's the pilot first but how did that come about and when they when it did were you already in the headspace of you know television going back to serious television might not be a bad thing
0: well that shift was starting to happen already Mm -hmm. where television was starting to become a place where you could tell you know surprisingly sophisticated yeah. stories. You know, Sopranos had been on, The Wire had been on, their precedents had been set. Uh-huh. So it felt like there was opportunity there. But it was still kind of still nascent, I think. The, there was still some kind of stigma attached to television, right. it, although that was softening. And But, yeah, I was really intimidated by it. I read the pilot. It was... You know, undeniably great and incredibly arresting. And I, as soon as I finished it, I wanted to read the next mm-hmm. one. I just didn't know if I wanted to do the next for one, seven you years. know, for, <laughs> yeah, because it was so much and she was under such duress and didn't seem like she would ever not be. Right. And I was nervous, too, about it talking so directly to you know what's happening in contemporary politics Mm -hmm. and and at that point it was really uh, so much about 9-11 and that was still quite raw and i I wasn't sure if it was teetering on something that on exploitation Mm -hmm. so i had a lot of concerns and questions and and i but i met with alex and howard and they're again kind of like ed and marshall Mm -hmm. and winnie you know such decent thoughtful smart responsible people mm-hmm. uh, they just wouldn't be jerks
1: about it you did have a an alternative offer at the time right
0: oh yeah I guess there was a chance of maybe playing the secretary to Leo's movie what he? J. Edgar J. J. Edgar Hoover yeah. And I just thought, do I want to be the secretary or do I want to be the Hoover? I want to be I want to be the right. vacuum cleaner.
1: Right. OK, so one of the things that I had wondered before I started prepping for this, I had known vaguely that when you were at Yale, I think you were studying psychology, right? I was. So I was thinking always maybe part of what drew you to Carrie was the focus on Absolutely, the absolutely,
0: it was. Yeah, that's always been, but
1: not initially, right? Because it wasn't in the pilot. It,
0: it, what me, I can't re- actually remember. Oh,
1: god, Only I, because I, the, I,
0: I keep saying that I can't remember. I can't, we're no, going way back here, but um,
1: <laughs> well, I, this might prod something just because yeah. I read that it actually so in the pilot you know she was intense or whatever but she right. wasn't bipolar and either. then that was showtime suggestion yeah just and did that make it more or less appealing to you to now be playing? I think it
0: made it more appealing yeah for sure I've always been really curious about pathology mm-hmm. and yeah I think if I w- wasn't an actor I would be in psychology somehow mm-hmm. my best friend is our mm-hmm. arielle yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, a, is a therapist you know and we talk about our work in similar yeah. ways actually
1: oh that's interesting yeah. so the show pilot gets picked up you now know that you're gonna have to get up to fully up to speed on what it means to be bipolar and all of this other stuff mm-hmm. do it first season starts and it was a phenomenon right off the bat. I think it was the highest rated debut of a Showtime drama in eight years, and they have had a lot of good shows. Did you realize during the making of it, though, that, you know, something special was going on? I think those first seasons, the chemistry with you and Damien was so interesting, Damien Lewis. So I guess I just wonder, like, did you have to see it to believe it, that it was really good, or did you know doing it? Mm.
0: I thought it was interesting, Uh but my opinions and my impressions of what I'm making do not necessarily correlate with everybody (laughs) else's. But as I said, when I read that pilot, I was propelled further, you know, and I thought, I I want more. Uh So I knew, you know, they, Alex and Howard can write a cliffhanger Uh like no freaking other. So I I knew it had a, a chance of being popular. Mm-hmm. I think nobody could anticipate how popular. And I remember being, you know, really frightened and unsure as we always are whenever we first start putting something together. And, uh, Michael Cuesta was our original producing director and he was reassuring me and I remember he, he had done, he'd worked on Dexter mm-hmm. when it, it first started. Mm-hmm. And he was saying Michael C. Hall was also you know outrageously insecure in assembling that role and Mm -hmm. I thought oh good okay good good good." (laughs) I took
1: real refuge in that so well you guys became the only Showtime show other than Dexter to ever get nominated for Best Drama Series and at that first year you won Damien won and the show won right like that that is a pretty unbelievable oh, it endorsement. Was totally,
0: it was totally, it was crazy. Crazy, great, mm-hmm. but, but
1: that is rare and wonderful. Yeah. And, you know. What's amazing yeah. is people would watch the show, I think, sometimes and, and think that is a pretty far-fetched plot line, and then five minutes later, the real world happens, and oh, yeah. whether it's Bo Bergdahl, the Brody-esque situation there, and attacks in Europe, and obviously a president who doesn't necessarily coexist well with others.
0: (laughs) Very diplomatically stated. Thank you. I'm
1: trying. Yeah. I really don't look at (laughs) don't look at my Twitter. It's not so. But it was interesting because what was the response in the intel community and even from certain presidents? Because they were among your biggest fans.
0: Right. Well, that's the best endorsement one could hope for. Yeah. Yeah. I credit our our writers and, and primarily Alex, who is our intrepid leader for being so thorough in their research and I mean they do let their imaginations roam and obviously they take license you know creative license poetic license but sometimes they are surprised by their prescience you know the prescience of the show and you know some of it is intentional and and by design and other moments are just seem to
1: come from some deeper, darker, <laughs> more mysterious place. Well, and you would though. Each season, you guys, you included, would kind of do some background. Chaps. We have spy camp. Spy we camp. Have spy camp.
0: <laughs> Every year, one of our writers, Henry Brumell, who who died. Um, a number of years ago now but his dad was in the cia Mm -hmm. and his cousin was a mentee of his father's and was also in the cia and had retired fairly recently when we first Mm -hmm. met him and in his retirement put together this week long event we go to a club Mm -hmm. like a spy club in georgetown (laughs) we park ourselves there for days in a row from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. and just interview people in the intelligence community and journalism and in politics. It's a pretty broad swathe of people. We Skyped with Snowden one year. Yeah. And we ask them what they're most frightened of, what's most relevant, what they think is going to manifest in a year's time when the show airs. And that's really where the writers do their deep diving and find their raw material and and have their imagination
1: sparked. So that's that's, that's a huge
0: resource. Yeah. yeah.
1: And what did Presidents Obama and Clinton have to say to you about the show?
0: Well, Obama apparently was a big fan. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if he still is watching. <laughs> Maybe he has a little more time to watch. Right, right. But well, he
1: was saying he was doing it in the Oval Office. Yeah.
0: That's, <laughs> I mean, oh boy, cavelling hard. Yeah. But I don't think Trump is watching. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he's such a fan. He's too
1: busy with Fox News. Yeah. Okay. So not many shows kill off one of their main characters so early on and still survive and thrive. When that was introduced, when you saw that was gonna happen, were you concerned?
0: That was always the intention. Brody was supposed to, to die at the end of the second season, mm-hmm. but the relationship proved to be so rich and, mm-hmm. you know, and we all loved Damien, so nobody wanted that to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that was the that was the original plan and the show kind of needed to grow through that
1: did you fear though any part of you that this could be a problem
0: you know I had real confidence in, yeah. in Alex and his team so I think it was it was it was handled yeah. well and it was interesting I mean to to have Kerry suffer that loss yeah. you know and they took that seriously I think they dove into it even you know in his absence yeah. he was still very
1: present and there were other, and there's always other people there yeah, yeah. so there yeah. you had other heart, heartache so no show pleases everyone and there were certain seasons that were more well received than others now though this most recent season people are like responding as if it was a rebirth or something that's had such a great response did you feel that doing it what do you well, mean again
0: it? i mean i'm i'm delighted yeah. i'm relieved but you know, I guess our third season was the one that was most knocked. Mm-hmm. And I quite liked that season. I liked, liked a <laughs> yes, lot about that yeah, season. Yeah. So I'm I'm not always in sync with the audience in their response to the show. But I'm so grateful that people are still watching. Uh-huh. And that everybody involved in the show is as motivated to, you know, work at this level. None of us have become complacent or fallen into bad stale habits. Mm -hmm. But I think the nature of the show is such that we're in a different location every year. We're working with a different crew. There are new cast members introduced. So there's a lot of creative circulation and it's exhausting Mm -hmm. because we kind of have to reinvent the wheel every year. But it also means that there's something for us to actively reach for and explore And so we're in a state of growth, you know, so, and I think that's unusual. Yeah.
1: Mm. Last three very brief things, if Mm -hmm. I can. Sure. Number one, this is silly, but I just have to ask you for your thoughts. There's a fascination that people have with what is called, quote unquote, Carrie's cry face.
0: Oh, yeah. I know that's like a thing. What do you... But I've had... My cry face has been... a th- I remember in my, in my so-called life when you wrote a scene where Rayanne makes fun of Angela's cry face. Really? Which is, you know, just... Claire's cry face, but yeah, I don't know. It's, I guess it's a thing. This is not something that I have worked on. No, this is just how I cry folks. I but, have no, I but have no I, issues with yeah, it myself. Yeah. Yes. It's expressive,
1: yes. I guess. No, it's... I blame
0: my dad. He has very rubbery features that <laughs> I think I inherited.
1: Number two, are you still having fun doing it? I mean, it's now eight years oh in. Oh my God, yeah. yeah.
0: It's so many years in. I am. I love our team. I love our little culture. Mm -hmm. It feels like I'm in a company Mm -hmm. and I do adore that aspect of it. And she's really dynamic, this Carrie person. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't get boring. And the writers, I think, do an incredible job of turning over all these other rocks within her. So yeah, so far, so, so good. And in terms of my energy level.
1: Yeah, even while pregnant. Yes, which twice. Is, twice, now. yeah, yeah, twice. It's, I mean, how do you do that? It's a pretty physical part.
0: It's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, last last time I was pregnant, I was filming until I was eight months, but I didn't. I wasn't filming during my first trimester. This time, I was filming during my first trimester, mm-hmm. which is a special kind of hell. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. You just. When there isn't a choice. Yeah, they
1: power through. Mm -hmm. Last one is, we have heard that the show is ending after next season, the 8th. How do you hope, this is sort of multi-pronged here, but how do you hope Carrie's story will end personally? How do you feel about this chapter of your story coming to an end? And do you have any idea of what your life is going to look like after Homeland? You're leaving it with a very different place in the industry, I think, than you went into it with.
0: Yeah. Well, firstly, I have to qualify that mm-hmm. and say that nobody's entirely sure if it is the final season. Mm-hmm. I, we think it is, mm-hmm. but that's not, a, you know, an absolute mm-hmm. certainty. So there's that, mm-hmm. but it will end eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know, it's really hard for me to visualize. I've emerged with maybe a different kind of status mm-hmm. in the industry, but I've also arrived at a different place in my life and that I will have two children mm-hmm. one of whom is now 5 and going to big boy school <laughs> and has an agenda of his own right. and that I kind of have to revolve around right. so i think those are a new set of demands but i don't know i can't say for sure
1: probably take a little time
0: right i'm going to need a minute yeah. i'm going to need God a minute is to, <laughs> yeah yeah to just reorient myself right. and right. it's going to be a big loss i mean i made this movie a kid like jake with jim yeah. parsons and that we shot last summer and Obviously, he does he's working on the big Bang theory uh-huh. he has for a very long time. Uh-huh. They couldn't be more antithetical in some ways those shows. but the experience of being held by an institution uh-huh. is the same. And we were both talking about how we're probably going to have to go to therapy <laughs> or something. you know take formal active right. measures to cope with that transition yeah. because it'll be such a huge shift. But I feel, you know, endlessly fortunate that I've had a chance to work on such quality material you know so consistently and form these working and personal relationships with this this group of people yeah. i mean it's corny but it really does it's this massive privilege i don't take it for granted
1: you guys do a great job and i so appreciate you doing this So, oh, thank congrats you congrats on the yeah, impending birth the na- yes thank you
0: <laughs> thank you i'll let you know
1: how it goes yeah all right <laughs> thanks